Does the channel provide value? Focus on the foundation. I am a travel vlogger. It's always about communication. Build those partnerships. What are the problems that you solve for your clients? Just being ahead on the technological side of things. Leading an organization. You not only want to survive, but you want to thrive. They said it wouldn't last, and they said that you can't drive profitable and incremental revenue through the affiliate channel. But here we are, 20 years later, and the affiliate channel is alive and kicking and generating profitable revenue for thousands of retailers across the globe. Hi, I am Jamie Birch, your host of the Profitable Performance Marketing Podcast, where we talk to some of the industry's best and brightest about their careers, about leadership, and about how to drive profitable revenue through the affiliate channel. Hey, this is Jamie with the Profitable Performance Marketing Podcast. Thank you for joining today. We have an outstanding episode uh, with Brian Marcus of Tune. Uh, Brian is currently the uh, Vice President of Global Marketing and Partnerships at Tune, uh, a SaaS uh, solution in the affiliate marketing space. Before we get there, though, we do have some resources uh, available to you at jbcommerce.com. So definitely go to jbcommerce/strategy, and that's going to give you access to a bunch of different strategies available to help you grow your affiliate program. Now, with Brian, we talked about a ton of stuff. Uh, some of the highlights that you'll find in this episode are some fantastic leadership lessons. And he shared four points on leadership that he learned through leaders that were leading him throughout his career. And Brian has uh, has been at an old school cataloger, a, a cataloger that has been around for over 100 years, J.C. Whitney. He worked at Google. He worked at eBay. Uh, he shares some advice from Larry Page with scarcity comes clarity. And really, when it comes down to leadership, he shared four things, authenticity, transparency, clarity, and be driven by purpose. And so he, he goes into that uh, a lot. You know, one of the things that he talks about and we, we discuss is incrementality. So if you're an advertiser and you're struggling with incrementality and you're wondering, is the affiliate channel driving sales that I wouldn't be paying for otherwise? It's a really good discussion that starts around minute 30 on how to do that and how to grow your affiliate program without risk. Brian worked at eBay when they took the program off of CJ. They brought it in-house uh, because of two really large fraud events and then had to build it up from the foundation, from a very small group, had to grow it with an incredible sensitivity to incrementality. So there's a ton to learn here. Uh, listen through to the end. It is a phenomenal episode. I hope you learn a lot from it. All right, Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me. This is, I, I think it's our third attempt uh, and the gods of the internet have shined or shown on us today for now. Anyway, how are you? Uh, doing great. Three times is a charm. And uh, mm -hmm. in the process, I was able to get all of my, uh, I have my AV or my internet equipment fixed since the, in the three times that we tried. So that's, that's one silver lining. Well, if I can be a catalyst for any sort of positive change, uh, I'm glad I was able to help you solve that. And, 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 and just being uh, needing to have you pass health checks so our mics would work. <laughs> That's it's it's the way of the world these days. Health checks, right? Uh, yeah, you know, it sure is. I was talking to someone this morning and. Uh, I've been using video for a really long time. Um, you know, we're we're in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, so uh, you know there's not a huge digital uh, marketing 
uh, group here. So we've been using video for a long time, but I've noticed since COVID, a lot more people are a lot more comfortable being on video. And today I was talking to someone who it, it was a prospective client and they're laying on the couch, hair undone, and they had no problem. And I just appreciated it so much because it's just a, a better way to touch base. But I did say, you know, we're all getting better at our lighting. Like we've had to become a bit of uh, 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 videographers, so to speak, at, at work with the lighting. And I've never had to do that before. Uh, well, you know what, I'll tell you, I think I have the voice for radio or the face for radio, so to say. <laughs> so uh, at least for now, uh, this, this suits me fine. <laughs> no, no, you're a you're a very handsome man, and I, I don't think you should Thank say you. that. <laughs> well, I, I I we've both been excited to chat. Um, you know, we talked about on our prep calls. You and I have uh, we have been in the same circles um, for a really long time, uh, for the entirety of of my career. Yet we didn't meet until this podcast started. We didn't meet formally uh, until a mutual friend introduced us. It's kind of crazy. I know it is. It is. Um, while the the industry is uh, relatively small, I think there's lots of little solar systems, uh, <laughs> where there's lots of little little galaxies within the within the space. And I think that sometimes uh, you find until you until you sometimes go to these larger events or you meet through friends or you get into different orbits, it's amazing how you can be in the same orbit and not meet other people. And I think, you know, when I think about uh, the world's that we were in going back almost, uh, in my case, about 18, 19 years, you know, I've been looking at um, affiliate marketing a long time, starting as a cataloger, but really getting into the space back in uh, 2000, oh boy, 2002, 2004, actually, wow. uh, with with Performix. And I think your, your orbit was largely, and that was a network back then that was uh, eventually gobbled up by uh, DoubleClick and then Google. But I think your orbit with Coldwater Creek really had you in the the sort of the Linkshare Rakuten galaxy, and that may be why we haven't uh, met way back when. Yeah, we we were uh, a big brand on Linkshare, and the the team there, um, you know, used us in lots of case studies. So definitely, we in my early career was focused around. I think my first affiliate program though was on Commission Junction. Okay. Uh, and then, and then I, I once I got to Coldwater Creek through the dot com bubble, uh, deflating and then completely bursting, and uh, uh, that found me uh, at the re- at the retailer with Linkshare. So yeah, so you know, tell us about you have a really unique uh, career path. You know, you've worked uh, at old school catalogers, and I think that's probably where we should have run into each other first was at JC Whitney, which has always been one of my favorite brands. I've had old cars since I knew those existed and I would get those catalogs and just pine away on window seal gaskets. If I just had <laughs> enough money to get this gasket for my 73 Ford. Uh, but you're, you worked at catalogers, you worked, uh, you know, in software, in uh, platforms, networks. Uh, so tell us a little bit about your career path. Sure. I mean, I spent probably prior to getting into e-commerce, uh, I spent sort of the first decade of my career in consulting, believe it or not. And uh, there was no internet, there was no e-commerce, or there was an internet, but there was no e-commerce to speak of. Uh, and and I spent, you know, probably my first decade doing 
consulting work in sort of the area of re-engineering, helping businesses think big change fast, you know, helping mm. them reorient. And then I ended up going to business school and that was a, a time where I had some time to reflect what, what I wanted to do. But at the same time, the internet e-commerce started to form. And uh, it really led me into, eventually into a cataloger at JC Whitney, where probably unlike you, believe it or not, I probably wasn't as big of a card tinkerer as you were, but I was definitely into marketing. And uh, JC Whitney was one of these businesses that was meant for the web. It was about a hundred year old business. Oh, yeah. And it was all about make, model, year, data. Yeah. And uh, you know, you, I, you can imagine thumbing through those, those uh, catalogs, the newsprint size font, trying to find yeah. your make, model, year. It's perfect for the internet. So I, I kind of, I came into JC Whitney when they were looking to make the big leap and go full, full bore into the, the web. And that's what I took on was, I took on a role basically to help me, to help JC Whitney grow as a business on the acquisition side. And I also, um, at the same time, was the business voice for business requirements on how to build out that website from an e-commerce standpoint. So that that got me fully immersed day one into internet marketing. I learned about every wow. channel. I learned about, I was in charge of all the channels and I was also in charge of thinking through how a website works and what types of capabilities those websites need. So it was, it was like, it went from being a, sort of an offline consultant you know, thrown into the internet, thinking about marketing and then using those same principles of marketing to, to adapt it to an e-commerce setting and help them, you know, go uh, make the next move into the next generation of, of JC Whitney. Now, now, before you move forward, that seems to be a pretty big career change from offline consulting to now this emerging thing coming out. Back then, I, I mean, I remember back then, I started my career then, and, uh, you know, no one really knew what this was going to, there's a lot of excitement about it. There's also a lot of big business failures, uh, to show what it wasn't good at. How did you make that decision to, to go into something so completely new? Well, so in consult, so actually my very first job with, was with a company called uh, Boise Cascade paper company, and uh -huh. I was working in their office products world. And I could have made a career like, you know, if you've seen the office, you know, in the paper and office products business, I could have been a regional manager. I could have done all those oh. things, right? Um, but I think what business school led me to consulting, consulting was because Boise was really about one industry, one set of issues, and it was around sort of distribution distributors. And I thought, I'm going to go really broad. And I ended up going to business school to sort of broad, broaden my horizons and learn to look at a whole bunch of situations across the board, different types of clients, different types of situations. And what it led me to is going broad. And going broad really helped me make an entrance into a brand new industry like, um, like the internet or e-commerce, because essentially what I learned is a whole bunch of pattern matching. And I learned basically looking at a number of different, different clients that had similar situations I was able to create in my own way through my consulting experience in business school, um, sort of playbooks. And when I looked at a uh, place, when I thought about e-commerce, thought about marketing, there were so many lessons that you can learn from the offline world from just plain old understanding marketing and applying them in an automated digital format that it wasn't as hard of a leap as you'd imagine. And in fact, I somehow convinced the COO of JC Whitney at the time that I was exactly their person. 
And uh, he, he looked at me and, you know, none of us had really strong e-commerce background, but I think he also believed in just sort of principles about marketing and thinking about that and applying it wherever you go. That's fantastic. You know, I was thinking of one of the things we do at JEB is, is we're very focused on our staff and we're focused on getting them ready for the next step. And in that is helping them craft how their experience here would relate to whether that, you know, they go forward in affiliate marketing or something else. And, and we try to boil it down into those principles and those fundamentals as well. Uh, not affiliate management necessarily, but account management and how to speak to that. So it sounds like you, that helped you, you know, get, uh, uh, take a step in a different direction. And I think if I remember, you know, from that time, there was a lot of talk about how this is so completely new. E-commerce is so completely new, but looking 20 years back, those principles that you you know, discovered and focused on, they're they're the same, or have some real strong correlation and, and commonality to traditional marketing. For sure, I mean, you know, um, sort of the broad approach, the frameworks we learned just in thinking about marketing, it was about your target customer. Just thinking about the three, what we called sort of the three C's and the four P's: company, competition, capabilities, and then all the the P's of marketing: pricing, promotion, place, and product. And whether you're in an electronic environment or offline, if you're a cataloger or if you're actually building your website, they they should apply to different audiences and different use cases, uh, slightly di- slightly different use cases, but the same sort of mentality of being able to find what you're looking for and discover what you're looking for and then be able to take them down a funnel and uh, get them to buy your product. And, you know, it, it was really interesting. I mean, I think my career like really changed at that point. And I, I, I think I made a big decision to go, my career sort of looked like a T. It was very, very broad uh, after getting out of uh, Boise Cascade. It was like thinking through how many different experiences could I get under my belt so that I could I could look at any situation and, and, and attack it. And then from the JC Whitney experience, experience I, I met affiliate marketing. And I didn't know when I met affiliate marketing at the time that I'd go so deep, but I think what's what really evolved was um, first understanding e-commerce and cataloging, and then understanding sort of where my channels were and what was giving me the best ROI. And then understanding sort of these channels like an affiliate channel, which was so confusing to people at the time, so new and so different that I, I needed to understand it better. And it, it forced me to kind of go into that world deeper and sort of peel the onion back. That's awesome. Now, after J.C. Whitney, Whitney what, was, uh, what was the rest of your career path to uh, sitting here with me today? <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Well, JC Whitney was my doorway into affiliate, as I said, because I was running, uh, I was running an early days program with two networks. One was Commission Junction, and the other was Performix. And uh, I was probably, you know, one of uh, one of CJ's, you know, decent clients at the time. And I think I was looking for understanding with the Performix folks why why the two programs look so different. So I remember Performix was based in Chicago. And uh, I called the CEO of Performix and I said, let's grab some lunch. I really want to talk to you about what's going on here because, you know, we have two networks side by side and they're, they're performing very, very differently. And when we met for lunch, that changed my entire sort of, that was a different door to a, an entirely different career because I came in really aggressively saying, you guys are not doing 
what your the other network's doing. I want to understand why we're not getting the best resources. I want to understand why why performance has dropped. And he just looked at me flat out and he said, well, look, you know, you guys are not focusing on us and you're not putting the investment into us. And therefore, I put my resources elsewhere. I mean, we, we're a performance-based network. We need to think through, you know, where we put our resources because it's all based on ROI. And so, you know, I looked at him across the table thinking to myself, well, that is gutsy and very <laughs> honest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I kind of said that to him. And, you know, the, out, out of the conversation really became a, a really intellectual conversation about partnership and, and uh, affiliate marketing and resource and investment. And it really intrigued me. And by the end of the conversation, he sort of said to me, are you, uh, are you um, interested in potentially looking to get out of J.C. Whitney, and I was I, <laughs> <laughs> at that stage of the game. I, I was so impressed by this guy that I said, "Let's let's talk," and that changed everything. And what it really opened for me was to go very, very deep into a topic that is, in and of itself, very broad. I mean, affiliate covers the spectrum of of internet marketing, of now mobile marketing. You think about all the different business models that make up the affiliate world. And I couldn't leave affiliate for, for very long. And I, I took one step away from it, but it, it, it taught me so much about how the whole, how the internet works that I, I joined Performix, uh, spent some time on the uh, publisher side first, um, and then, then I very quickly ended up on the advertiser side where I took over all the advertiser relationships. Uh, we got acquired. Um, by well, we were acquired by DoubleClick, but then we got acquired by Google. And at that time, um, I, I was in the fortunate position of being on the leadership team and helped them launch uh, what became the Google Affiliate Network and spent a good portion of eight years with that team that came from Performix to Google. So we had a really tight team. We had a, it was all based in Chicago, even though we were part of the Google world. And we we built out a great business there, and uh, that's where I really cut my teeth on on affiliate uh, was was again being in the consulting role within Google Affiliate. I was able to look at across all advertisers, and we had over wow. a thousand of them, and then be able to do the same sort of pattern matching that I did in consulting is sort of say, what do I what's common across these programs, what works, what doesn't work, and start to build my playbook at Google. And uh, I can take a breath if you want to jump in. I don't want to monopolize, but that that is where my worlds collided uh, of being a great, you know, sort of the great consultant meets affiliate marketing. And it really led me to thinking about, you know, Google is vast in and of itself. And, and as I started to get a sense for the fact that Google was probably not super interested in being the largest affiliate network, they had other designs. Um, I started looking elsewhere um, because I didn't want to go into other parts of Google. I didn't want to be in other sectors. I wanted to go deeper into affiliate. And eBay actually um, happened to call me at exactly a moment of weakness. And um, I was in a snowstorm <laughs> stuck in my car uh, oh. on the way home. Yeah. And they called me and they said, hey, we have a role to run our largest traffic acquisition channel at eBay. We just turned a corner and we want to re sort of restart this great asset uh, called the eBay partner network. And we want you to we want to talk to you about it. And that's, that led me to, to my uh, move out to Seattle from Chicago. And I, I basically had to go shut down the eBay San Jose 
traffic team upon my arrival to eBay and then moved them up to Seattle. So I never actually moved to San Jose eBay. I moved right up to Seattle and, and formed the team up there. Wow. You know, when I've always been intrigued, you know, by the Google acquisition of Performix and then the shutdown of the network. Um, that, that was always intriguing to me. Were you there at that time? I was there uh, up in, no, I left about a year before that. J.J. Uh, uh, Hershley, the guy who, um, who ended up running uh, Google Affiliate after, uh, after I left, uh, was basically, uh, we were in touch through that entire time because he was a Google guy and a retail guy, uh, but he was not really an affiliate guy. And he was trying to figure out sort of how to deal with what was going on internally at Google and how to, how to properly uh, transition clients that were deep into this channel, deep into GAN uh, when uh, Google was making the decision to, to retire, to retire the Google affiliate network. So I was very, very involved from the outside when I was at eBay. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I, while I did not participate in the shutdown, I was very uh, close to the team and, um, and went through all the motions in some ways of thinking through what's going to happen to all the large clients that we just built you know, spent the last eight years plus building up. Um, And I remember actually I was at uh, Gino's, I was at AM days speaking Uh with eBay uh, when the day that they announced the shutdown, um, I was speaking at that same event where I met the guys from Tune. I met uh, up with uh, Impact Radius was there and a, a number of other guys. And they had just shut Google affiliate down while I was, while I was there. And I remember the conversations that were ensuing during that time. And I remember sitting down with some of the folks that were there saying like, here's, here's, I'm happy to make some introductions of our clients. I'm happy to talk to you about who these guys are. I just wanted to find a great home for some of these programs because they were like enormous programs. They were the Citibanks, the Cap Ones, Sears and Target and all those, all those brands. So it was fascinating meeting what became my future uh, while I was with eBay, like sitting in Gino's uh, relatively small conference at the time, yeah. uh, there were quite a bit of interesting folks sitting around there during a moment where the industry just shifted. Yeah. Now your pattern matching, if I can dive into that a little bit, I, th- I think I was doing the same thing. My first gig was a search engine guru. That was my title in 99. <laughs> okay. uh, and I did I SEO. It. Yeah, yeah. I, I had no idea what a guru was. And frankly, I had no idea what SEO was at the time either. Uh, I was an <laughs> arrogant uh, college grad who answered, you know, the basic question of, you know, do you think you can do this job with a resounding, yeah, and they gave me the job. But what I what I did, I didn't know anything about it. So I would print, I'd literally print out the on the page of every website's ranking for a particular word. And then I'd print out the code and I'd try to find patterns in those, you know, what are the commonalities between those things that then I could mimic in what we were doing. And so when you're talking about pattern matching from a very broad perspective, am I, am I doing the same thing? Is that kind of, is that what you're referring to? Yeah. I mean, you're for sure. I mean, what you're doing is you're applying sort of a set of common, commonly seen or experienced um, activities and knowing getting closer and closer each time you do it to understanding where it's going to go. And when I think about consulting, you end up 
very quickly, if you work on a number of clients, and I know you work on clients all the time, when you see the same thing over and over, you can pretty much, you know, predict and or put together a set of tactics or strategies to address that particular issue. And consulting helped me see that from a broad perspective. I like I can go outside of an industry and say, oh, this is what happens with the new product development process or a, you know, a re-engineering project where you're changing organizations and, and behaviors um, to on the affiliate side, it became, again, a very broad industry, but you could pretty much under, if you, if you put a mental model in your head about what, what an affiliate program looks like and how to, how to think about it, you can, you can pretty, you can pretty easily sort of understand how to build the foundation of a program and, and predict some of the things that would happen depending on the, the moves you make. And uh, I look at pattern matching as a really great skill set to develop um, after over a career. And I think many people see different patterns when they go from industry to industry or job to job. But because I'd spent so much time in affiliate uh, and because of the fact that I moved from being on the advertiser side to the network side to the publisher development side i mean i had pretty back to like ebay where i was a advertiser and a publisher network i had all these perspectives that i was able to um yeah. i would be able to sit in somebody's shoes and understand what it looked like from this angle or that angle and and be able to be helpful to advertisers or even ebay at the time saying this is what i do yeah, that's awesome thank you uh and and now you've been at tune for almost four years yeah, I mean, so I, you know, eBay, um, uh, eBay really helped me understand the value of SaaS. And I say that because not because eBay turned to a SaaS model, it's because eBay at the time did not turn into a SaaS model. And so I walked into eBay understand, with a team of roughly 16 engineers at the time and a team of 12 uh, really great account people and operations and network people. And my, my thought was, we are actually, as eBay, competing with other networks, like, like any other network. And even though we're the world's largest marketplace, we're competing against MarTech. And that became very quickly, um, to me, who is in charge of both the acquisition side and the business side of developing the platform, I quickly realized that to keep up with other great platforms on fraud, on mobile, on all these emerging social trends, it was going to be very difficult to fight the engineering resources to prioritize always the affiliate network over other MarTech projects like paid search or display or other types of things. So I was competing with those resources and it made me wonder, maybe instead of focusing on just the technology angle, we should be focusing on the relationships. And maybe we should give somebody else who can focus only on the technology an opportunity to focus on that all day long. And I started thinking about that quite a bit. Um, I left um, I left eBay, went to a very small startup here in town, ended up rejoining the guy who hired me at eBay, rehired me back uh, to a company called Teespring, which was another e-commerce, digital e-commerce platform where you could make digital goods like T-shirts uh, uh, you can make physical product out of digital ideas. You can upload mm -hmm. artwork onto T-shirts, et cetera. Um, but then I, I was really intrigued with the uh, performance angle again of Teespring. We worked with a lot of performance marketers, and I wanted to get back to basics with technology. And I ended up at Tune because Tune not only was the guys 
that I met back at the uh, the AM days were asking me all sorts of questions about what I thought about SaaS, where I thought it was going. Could others could others do what eBay did, uh, building their own program? But they were in Seattle where I was located, and they had some really progressive thoughts about um, about building technology for networks and building technology for mobile. And I thought, what a great place to bring together all the pieces that I love. And, uh, and so I've been now with, uh, with Tune almost going on four years now and uh, been started out on the product marketing side, uh, ended up taking over all of marketing for Tune. And now uh, since May, I've been, um, uh, I also have partnerships, which include agency partnerships and uh, our media partnerships and our technology partnerships. So um, we're a SaaS-based platform and we are a partner marketing platform. And we help advertisers really build their own private networks, much like I thought would happen eventually at eBay. Um, mm-hmm. And now I'm doing it for all sorts of different types of advertisers using our technology. That's awesome. Now, one of the things I like to dive into is is kind of career choices and, and uh, leadership lessons. I want to go into leadership, but how did you approach, you know, when you're in that car and it's snowing and eBay calls? How do you, how did you, how do you, how did you approach, uh, you know, career changes and next steps like, like that? Did, did you have a, uh, yeah, a regular, you know, kind of process to evaluate those things? What's, what's, um, you know, how, how did you make those decisions in your career? Yeah, well, it, interesting. It's a great question because um, that particular choice was one of the hardest choices I think I've ever made in a career because I was working at the world's greatest software company. You know, I mean, here I was working at uh, Google, which really gave you just about everything you could imagine you needed. And like, there's no there's no reason to leave Google, right? Other than probably curiosity or perhaps um, in my case, it was a real like burning curiosity to stick with something and go deeper into it. And I, and I recognized probably at that stage of the game that that's not the direction that Google was going. So um, I think it, it had to have taken a really amazing opportunity to pull me out of Google at that time. And while I was looking at other options within Google, like within the commerce group and the offers group, um, they, I was looking into other channels like display and mobile I didn't want to be that hundredth salesperson competing to be the, you know, and, and, and knowing that I didn't know that topic as well as the 99 people before me, I, mm-hmm. I wanted to be the one person that knew all that I knew in this one topic. So at, at Google, I, you know, I was a, a team of roughly 80 people that knew everything about affiliate. And I was the only person of my kind that ran affiliate for advertisers for Google. So that that was what really inspired me. But if I went to go move for to other places within Google, I'd just be one of one of many. So the eBay offer came at exactly the right time because I sort of saw what was happening with affiliate and I thought to myself, I want to be that special person with these skills. And eBay said to me, this is an incredibly important and strategic channel for us and we're looking for someone with your skills. So it was just like fate. <laughs> Hate trap in the car, and I, and I had so much time to spend. I normally didn't like take phone calls because I was pretty happy at Google, and I didn't really think I was going to leave those those confines. But this one felt too good 
because of all the experiences I had within um, with my client base. So for example, Target at the time, who was a client of ours and a client of mine, I remember talking to Target about the eBay model of pricing. And I remember a lot of my clients looked to eBay uh, in their affiliate program and thought they were sort of like on the leading edge. So when they called me, there was, there was like the perfect storm here no pun intended the snow was coming down hard (laughs) and here i was with this opportunity to go work with a real leader in affiliate marketing and um it it would give me an opportunity to go deep and make a career out of this topic which i felt had such great legs i mean it had such such a future ahead of it that i wanted to to own it i wanted to be that guy at ebay to own the channel that's awesome. Do you think that's like, do you give that sort of advice of go broad first and then deep further on in your career? Is that something you give to, you know, I was talking to a 25 year old this morning who, uh, you know, pointed out that he was in like eighth grade when Google came out and made me feel super old, uh, <laughs> you know, but is that sort of advice that you give to someone coming up, like go broad in your experience and then find something to go deep into? You know, I'd say it's it's good advice for perhaps someone like myself, which is Ed, when I came out of college, I was a liberal arts student, you know, right out of college. I didn't know much about business and uh, I really had no idea. I had no business being in business at the time. I was a political science major out of a you know very tiny liberal arts college in the Midwest. And so I needed to get a lot of experiences across a lot of different things to be able to uh, sort through what I wanted to do. And I, th- I think like being a part of an agency, I remember my first job option outside of Boise Cascade was to go work for Leo Burnett, which was a uh, huge advertising agency in Chicago. Um, I chose to go with Boise probably because they offered me a better salary at the time. And I was a college student, needed the, you know, needed the money. But once I realized how confined I felt at Boise being in the paper industry, I said, ah, I got to go broad. And I, I recommend that to probably the vast majority of people don't know what they want to be when they grow up all the time. Yeah. You know, my kids, uh, I have an 18 year old who's pretty focused on what he wants to do. And I would not necessarily tell him to go broad before he goes deep. But I'd say to the average person like myself, it doesn't hurt you to go join an agency or a consulting firm and cut your teeth on frameworks and ways of, of thinking and building those models in your head so that you can approach anything and then go deep where you become invaluable and you become a subject matter expert and your and your expertise is expertise is worth something pretty valuable. So I, I think that's that is sort of in the, uh, that is that is the way I go about doing it. And I'd recommend if you're anyone like myself, that would be a good way to go about graduating college and going deep and thinking about your career. Yeah, that probably resonates with me because I was the same way. I had no idea what I was going to do. I didn't get uh, sort of plugged into the net until my dad sent me an article of a 21-year-old driving a Bugatti. Like, I like cars and I'd like to have the money to buy a Bugatti. So let's go over there. Uh, Before that, I had almost accepted a job at Gelled Wen in their manufacturing and management program. Uh, But you've, you've managed. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. You know, I mean, I was, oh. I was a political science major, um, yeah. you know, and I think what, you know, I had a number of people in my family that were in the legal profession. It just seemed obvious place to go. But then I learned that I really liked, you know, I did one of those 
personality tests or, or mm -hmm. marketing skills tests or skills tests. And marketing came out as my top sort of uh, advertising and marketing were my top skills. So that's when I decided to pursue marketing, but I just didn't know marketing what, marketing how. And that's when going broad really helped me sort of sort through that. Yeah, I was actually uh, studying to be a uh, either a physical therapist or a, a personal trainer. And when the college told me my next semester was in the cadaver lab, <laughs> I said, uh, which way to the business school? <laughs> I yes. am not Life doing that. Can't do it. Got to get out of here. Uh, yeah. So you've led a lot of teams, Brian. There's so much going on right now and things are so different. Uh, you know, we got crazy election going on, a lot of, uh, you know, we have a pandemic, a lot of divide in the country, a lot of divide within the individuals and companies. So over that time, like what are some leadership lessons that you've learned that you hold too true to now as we're dealing with this, these challenges, this tumult um, that you've held on to, uh, to lead teams right now? I can think of sort of four key people in my career that have and, and their 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 words and their actions that st stand out pretty clearly for me. Um, uh, sort of early on, um, I think in the Performix days, it was it was a guy named Stuart Frankel who was the CEO of Performix, and I think um, he taught me a lot about how um, he he was an he's just an incredibly bright guy, and he knows he knows. He knows so much about so many things, but he was pretty, pretty um, humble guy, and he was pretty funny guy. Like he was able, he was able to use humor, um, and and to be able to help teach people. So I think during times like this, humor is incredibly uh, helpful in creating safety for people and safety and failure and helping teams recover fast. Um, so I, I never forgot how Stuart would use humor at times where things felt really crazy, including the time that, you know, we got purchased by Google. Well, first it was Microsoft and then Microsoft didn't win the bid and then Google won the bid. And then we had to wait a year uh, for the clearances of all the different um, fair trade organizations. So there was a lot of stress and he dealt with that via humor. And I, I really appreciate that. Um, second was at Google, I had sort of two, two kind of groups that I looked up to. One was um, our online sales group was led by a woman uh, named Claire Hughes Johnson, who's now the um, COO of Stripe. And she taught the team, we were essentially at Google during the recession, 2008. That's when we started at Google. And uh, I think a lot of, a lot of, even though Google is pretty isolated, insulated from some of the really crazy stuff going on during the great recession, um, it did create a lot of change, uh, and Google was pretty good about thinking about being proactive about change and, and being ready to go, especially for their clients in that time of change. And one thing Claire talked a lot about and had a ton of training around with her leadership team was um, being authentic and being transparent to your team. There's a, there was an authenticity um, that was required during a really hard time, like the, the recession where people ex like they didn't want to see two different people they wanted to know who's leading me can i trust that person and how do i trust that person knowing that are they gonna again are they gonna make it safe for me to go do my job are they gonna be uh transparent about the times are we gonna know where we stand um and 
one of the things that she was really big on was sort of trans transformative change. And I think sort of the foundations of that were around being authentic and being transparent as a leader to engender trust during these transformative times. And uh, I remember going to Dublin for a big workshop around adaptive leadership, and we learned a ton about thinking through when to turn the heat up on an organization, how to turn the heat up, how to turn it down when things were really, really crazy. Hmm. And, you know, Google responded quite, you know, ironically, you'd think that they didn't do anything during the, the recovery because they were making money hand over fist, but they really did a lot. And that that leads me to the, the other group that had a lot of um, influence on me, Larry Page. Um, I remember him getting on to one of our weekly not our weekly, but like he used to go in front of the entire company every week and have a, a big all company meeting with the entire Google, with the entire Google company live. And he'd take questions from all over the place. And uh, one of the things he said right when the recession hit was with scarcity comes clarity. And uh, I, I, I love that because it's, you know, the recession was a time for many people to panic and to see the downside of things and to see the negative. But Larry was optimistic and he felt that sometimes during times like a recession, maybe times like COVID, you know, you, you can't have everything you need and you have to think about what's important. And sometimes when you just step back from things, you can be ruthless in the prioritization of your projects, of your purpose, and be able to structure a, an organization around those. And I was leading a 45 person team at the time at Google. And we had to really let go of stuff very quickly. And we used OKRs, which were really uh, objectives, key results, big tool from Google to help us narrow down the two to three big projects we were gonna hit and the two to three metrics we were going to uh, focus obsessively on. Um, and uh, so that was, so the Google world was all about authenticity, transparency, clarity. And then uh, Robert Chetwani, who is one of my all-time favorite people and mentors, he was the, the CMO of eBay, and now he's the CMO at uh, Atlassian. He hired me twice. He's the guy that took me to eBay and Teespring. He taught me everything, uh, you know, really from a business standpoint, he really taught me about humility and purpose. And um, I think one of the things he demonstrated in his leadership is just about how to take your purpose and let that guide you, your North Star, and help you figure out how to separate the bumps along the way from the real thing you're focused on, you know, the real opportunity, and to think about possibility. And again, Jamie, you had asked me about COVID and, and hard times. You need someone who doesn't focus on the day-to-day -day during hard times all the time. You need someone that can look out and see like a buoy out on the water, and they may say, it's far away. We're going to get there. I don't care if we drift to the left or drift to the right, but this is this is where we need to go. And you need to help us understand. You know, he looked at folks like myself and others to say, you need to tell us how to get there and, and I'll support you. And those were the types of leaders that have really made an impact on me in my career. And I'm really uh, thankful that uh, um, uh, many of these folks are, are very prominent in my mind as I go from uh, role to role and think through how I how I can help different organizations. Wow, that I took two pages of notes right there. Um, that <laughs> Sorry, transparent. No, it was. It was uh, I'm inspired. You know, good leadership inspires. 
I am inspired from that. Like the, the, you know, I love that comment that you shared from Larry Page with scarcity comes clarity, you know, and I think in a lot of ways we're experiencing, you know, as a company, uh, that definitely right now, um, uh, I really, the humor resonates. Uh, I use that a, a lot. So it's good to see that, you know, that's a good, a good, uh, thing that, you know, I haven't, I asked this type of question on many, uh, many of the episodes, um, cause I do get access to individuals like yourself that work for amazing brands, managed multiple, uh, you know, tens of people, hundreds of people in different teams. Uh, and it's my podcast. So I get to ask questions that I want to know the answer to. So, uh, how to lead is fantastic. So I really appreciate that now going to affiliate marketing. Uh, and, and by the way, that was a phenomenal answer. So much there. Uh, for our listeners, I'll include a bunch of it in our notes. Now, let's dive into affiliate marketing and a topic that a lot of advertisers have been grappling with sometime, and that's incrementality. You have a really unique perspective uh, coming from an old school cataloger uh, to this concept. So talk to me about incrementality. Sure. I mean, incrementality, I think, is an evergreen marketing topic, and it transcends digital marketing. It's another one of those pattern matching kind of questions, right? So when I joined a uh, direct response marketing cataloger, those that were really, really focused on sort of, you know, how many catalogs am I sending out and what's my circ, And, mm -hmm. you know, that that's the focus of probably the first 80, 90 years of that company. The question as websites started to enter into the equation you know, there were a lot of people protecting the catalog and trying to figure out, hey, you're spending you know, what could have been my budget on the website, and are you spending that money wisely, or are you cannibalizing what I'm, what I'm doing with the catalog? Um, and uh, I used to have, like, pretty heated discussions. The catalog team did not particularly want me around because I meant uh, being the future of J.C. Whitney with a digital uh, footprint I potentially could could have meant that the catalog, um, the world of catalog could change dramatically. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. and so we used to have some pretty heated conversations about where we put our money and, and um, you know, they used to have the catalog matchbacks where they'd send a catalog out with certain codes. And if they mentioned yeah. the code in the, in the orders, you were able to tie it back. So incrementality goes as far back as that, uh, probably farther. And when I spend money here, does the action that I do stimulate a response? And if I didn't do that action, would I have gotten the response? I think that's kind of simply how I think about incrementality. Um, so that 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 to me is kind of like, again, thinking about patterns, it's like I look at affiliate marketing and I think it is always sort of, it is a, a deep obsession uh, with affiliate marketing is does it drive incremental volume? Um, it's a good question and a question that I was confronted with squarely at eBay, um, where I, like, not only could I no longer just entertain the question, I had to go out and, and sort of deal with that question very, mm -hmm. very intensively. And uh, the, the catalog world taught me a lot about how channels work together. You know, it's really interesting. If I think about incrementality from the catalog world and apply it to the affiliate world, Catalog, I think it used to be an us versus them kind of argument. Is, is it catalog or is it online? Who gets the spend? I think one of the things I like to do when I was in that spot was bridge it and say it's catalog and internet. And by the way, for every catalog you circulate, you put the website on there and we drive people to the website to go order. So that give them another way to order easier. 
And, uh, you know, we, we were confronted with questions of how do we make our profitability? Do we cut catalog circulation? What does that do to, to website? That all those questions sort of played front and center when I uh, when I worked at eBay, and was confronted with the very same question: um, our loyalty sites uh, incremental, our coupon sites incremental. And I don't know, Jamie, when I when I joined eBay, you, you have to sort of the context for my joining was that eBay basically took their program in house from Commission Junction back in 08 because. There was a ton of fraud uh, with with two ramp rogue affiliates that that really. I remember uh, that story. Oh yeah, forty million, roughly forty million dollars of damage, and so they took the program in house and they made it really tiny. They the most of the partners that worked with them kind of bailed, and they were very very controlling and sort of who they let in and and what they could do. And they they brought me in there to say like, okay, we're past that now. This is a great asset. We have our own network. How do we how do we expand it? Uh, so they were super interested. Robert and team were super interested in figuring out how to make this, how to scale this. But the finance team, while uh, also interested in that question, was also super interested in understanding how to do that without risk. And and so I think that's where incrementality became sort of a, a hallmark of eBay. Is as we went back into different types of partnerships. The question loomed like, well, are we spending the right money? Is our marketing efficiency where it needs to be? Is our Which is probably good? the bigger question, right? You know, the efficiency of the spend. Efficiency of the spend was a big, big part of the question. And, um, and I think on top of that, I think there was a fundamental belief that affiliate, I don't think everybody was convinced that affiliate was bringing incremental <laughs> traffic. Yeah. And, uh, I, and of course, my job was to grow the affiliate channel. So I had, uh, again, some fairly tough conversations with really smart people that knew numbers better than I did. And I had to figure out a way to paint a bigger picture for them around partnership and help them understand how to think about incrementality in a different way. And it's not just like new buyer. It could be incremental transaction or it could be a, 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 yeah, like like an additional product in the basket or it could be somebody returning to you versus going to your competitor. And I think a lot of those discussions had to be backed with, with really intensive uh, statistical significance, which was largely out of my control. It was really si- set up by scientists, data scientists, who would test me. And, and um, we'd have to set up some pretty significant tests to make sure that what we believed was actually backed by data. Yeah, you know, and this sounds like my experience at Coldwater Creek, an old school cataloger, uh, and uh, I was a department of one, often having to fight for a credit for sales and, and uh, feeling the same way, dealing with very smart people, uh, smarter than myself and trying to show and, and drive, you know, change in, in the view of the channel. And I often look back and boy, I hated those two guys uh, that were pushing me in the end. But I tell you what, I learned so much because at the end, I want to be able to show that what I spend a third of my life doing is valuable, right? Absolutely. If I found I just spent 20 years doing something that's not providing additional value, I'd be devastated. So I thank, uh, you know, Tim, Jamie, if you're listening, they pushed me hard to show that this channel was actually doing uh, what 
the numbers were showing. Um, now, what was successful in that? Because we encounter that with clients now and uh, find education really helps. Uh, but you're, you're up against a very entrenched, uh, probably much larger team. When you're going through that, was it just the data? Like, hey, we're going to show the data. We're going to make data-based decisions. You know, it, it started that way, and that's why, um, and again, like you, I, I have to admire people with tremendous data science and, and analytics skills. Uh, my friend Frank Zhu, who ran analytics, taught me more about analytics than I've ever, ever known, and he was actually a partner in discovering this. Like, you know, it felt at times contentious, but it was because we were all after the same, the right answer, but the data itself was part of it. The other part of it is being able to paint a vision. And so one of the things, so I think you start with a, a hypothesis and you start with um, a, a good logical rationale for why you want to approach a certain type of partnership. And when we were rebuilding eBay uh, partner network, I went out there and said, you know, there's no such thing as a partner. We like, we shouldn't be work, we, should, we shouldn't be saying no to partners unless they're bad actors. We should be saying, we'll work with you, but it, we have to determine the right price to work with you, right? It should never be a, like, I don't understand why you wouldn't work with someone if you can make money and if you exactly, can win, yeah. a win-win. So we had to find a happy medium between understanding the value of these sites, which we spent a lot of time diving into. Like we had to really school the analysts on what a loyalty site was. Who are the people behind the loyalty site? What are their technology capabilities? And I think as they got to know, say back in the day it was Ebates and and uh, on the content side it was Viglink and, and on the coupon side it was Retail Me Not. When you got to know some of these people that sat behind the sites, it actually built the relationships with some of the data scientists. So they got to understand the value beyond just what they thought it would be. But at the same time, you also had to set a fairly objective experiment. So, and I shouldn't say fairly, a very objective experiment, which is, you know, if I don't show the ad or if I shut the channel down, does the channel, does the traffic go, does it come back? Does it go elsewhere? Like what's the uh, result? And you have to be able to prove that your hypothesis was correct within a, a standard set the standard deviation. So I had to live with the fact that while I was not uh, an analyst, um, I had to be able to um, stand by those decisions when they were made. Um, but I, I put up a darn good fight in painting a, a much bigger picture for the company on where we needed to go as a network. So I think it's a little bit of data, a lot of bit of data, plus a lot of vision and uh, being able to work internally with folks and help them understand the value. That is awesome. I wish we had met when uh, you were at J.C. Whitney and <laughs> I was at Coldwater <laughs> Creek. I could have used this these four uh, four steps. Um, now testing, we did some interesting tests uh, at Coldwater Creek for for the same very same reason. You've done some really interesting tests too, especially with loyalty and coupon sites. Can can you share about those? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think sort of without getting into the weeds too much, because I, I don't even know if I could go there in the weeds too much. I think the structures of the test were sort of the following. With with loyalty, I remember actually pitching loyalty to our CMO at the time. Her name was Rochelle. And um, 
you know, she really, she gave me an opportunity. We got to pitch the CMO on different ideas. And I said, I think we ought to be back in the loyalty channel. And here's why. And I gave my reasons. Um, what it turned out to be is the only way to really test loyalty at the time was to shut the channel down. And so we, we had to go to all the loyalty guys that, that A, weren't working with us and say, or even, you know, or, or working with us a little bit and uh, or uh, were willing to work with us and be able to say, we're going to have to interrupt this relationship and be able to turn it off, turn it back on. And uh, we enough people were obviously interested in working with eBay that they were willing to do whatever they had to do to get on to the program, because I think they believed in their hearts of heart of hearts that they were incremental to the business. So that's what we had to do. I remember we had a couple sites that were flying under the radar. There were loyalty sites. I don't even know if our analysts knew that we were working with them. But they ended up being a great test bed for us because we were able to turn those guys off and turn them back on. And then we were able to work with really like the guys at Rakuten now who were back early days at, e at Ebates. I mean, these guys were amazing. They were, they were really great to work with. And they were uh, super um, um, method, like really strong structure around the, the, the process. So um, it was on off with loyalty. Um, with coupons, it was a little trickier. I think coupons and content were around A-B testing, as I recall, and being able to swap out traffic or ads at the point of um, when somebody would come find uh, the ad, like, or either go looking for eBay on a Retail Me Not or be presented with an ad that they didn't know about. And again, I honestly, I, I can't tell you the, I can't remember all the details of how we did it, but I do know that it was a lot of, about ad serving we had to place a pixel on uh, Retail Me Not site. We had to we had to look at the traffic and see if they uh, if they if they didn't see an ad, did they come to eBay? If they if they came to Retail Me Not, didn't see an oh, ad, and still came to eBay. Yeah, did we did was that was that like uh, did did we drive enough traffic without the ad or with the ad? We did that on uh, the coupon sites, and I think we did something very similar with Viglink on the content side because they were able to move traffic with their linking behind the scenes to different advertisers. So depending on whether a word was hyperlinked or not, or depending on if it was a brand word in content or not, they were able to assign uh, where that traffic went to. It either went to eBay or somewhere else. So uh, long and short of it is it was complicated. Um, yeah. And it was, it was complicated and we needed decision criteria set way up front. Like we had to say like, Here's the structure. <laughs> if it's this, we do this. If it's this, if it's that, we do another path. And we had to agree on that before yeah. we entered in. Well, and you probably got that from the data scientists too. That's where, you know, one thing I learned in that process from uh, those two individuals was like, okay, well, we're going to test this, but what are we testing? What's the, what's the hypothesis? What's success and what's failure? And exactly. setting the conditions before you stepped in. I've done that in the past and, and recently. And if you don't set those things up, you don't really know what you're testing. And uh, results can be interpreted after the fact so differently. And not only that, but when you're in an organization as big, and in some cases, sometimes as politically charged as, and not politics in the, the true sense, but just, mm -hmm. you know, you had all these organizations, and they all have their different remits. Um, you know, finance wanted to squeeze every penny, you know, make it as profitable as it can. The business team wanted to strike as many deals as they can. I mean, you had to have 
clear criteria up front because half the battle, once you got the result, was actually implementing and feel, feeling good about the decision you make. And I don't know if you're aware of it, but eBay had a really intensive sort of internal accounting of attribution. So they were able yeah, to, yeah, yeah you get, you, you bring $100 into eBay through the affiliate channel, but maybe depending on how incremental they were, maybe you only get credit for 70 or 50 bucks of that. And you have to pay out on a percentage of revenue. So there's there's a lot of uh, internal, external um, alignment that has to happen to make sure you're doing it in a profitable way and to make sure that the publishers who think they're driving $100, they, they have to understand that uh, in, in that old model that we were working in, their dollar was worth 70 cents or 50 cents, and therefore their payout had to be matched commensurately. And so... Yeah, you know, we did that. Uh, we did that as well. And the mistake, I, th I think, the mistake was made is the the total revenue of the order uh, was divided amongst the channels that produced the order. So if it it touched another channel, uh, and you would divide that revenue up between those two channels, the costs weren't. So. Uh, we, uh -huh. we actually didn't tie it back. So if a $100 order came through, but only 50 was attributed to the affiliate channel, uh, the affiliates got commission on 100 So I don't, I didn't know what the solution should be, but it sounds like what you guys did is, is, you know, whether that order came through, there was an attributed order amount and that's what they got paid on. Yeah. And in fact, you know, uh, the folks on my team, I had some amazing people I worked with, uh, folks like John Toski and Mike Lill and a whole host of people that, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure you do. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, John, I remember working with John really closely and the partners one by one explaining to them, we used to have uh, publisher advisory panels. We would, we, we finally got to the point where it was no, we could not and should not have kept it a secret how we, how we, uh, managed internally. In fact, what we did is we flipped it and we said, we're going to be really transparent. Again, back to the leadership principles. We're going to be really honest. We're going to build a relationship with these publishers by telling them exactly how they're viewed internally. So if they were not viewed as a highly incremental type of uh, business model, you know, we weren't going to be, we weren't going to beat around the bush. We're going to say, this is how eBay measured your uh, incrementality. And therefore we're only making you know, affiliates only getting credit for 70, we can't pay out a dollar. Otherwise, yeah. we're underwater. So we're going to have to work together to figure out how to make it worth your while. You know, we came up with all sorts of bonus structures. We, we changed pricing entirely from uh, what, what used to be called a quality click pricing way back when to a revenue share model. Um, and we were able to really get into the details of, okay, like what kind of category is this? You know, what kind of margin do we make? Uh, is it a new buyer or an existing buyer? And we're able to play with some of those levers to, to make it worth the publisher's while. Yeah, we never, we didn't make that connection back to that. So we made revenue dis decisions based on revenue, but didn't incorporate the total cost and the true cost uh, on those things. I give eBay a lot of credit. That is where, um, once we figured out what you just described, that there's a misalignment in pricing between external and internal. We made a really concerted effort to align those. And I think it, uh, it was a hard path, but I actually think that it goes a long way when you're, when you're honest and you're upfront with your partners about what you can and cannot do. It actually really built uh, out a lot of the relationships that could have gone the other direction. 
Yeah, definitely, definitely, really unique situation. Um, so, y- with your experience uh, and your unique perspective, what are some of the mistakes, uh, the biggest mistakes advertisers are making in their digital marketing and their relationship to affiliate marketing? Yeah, I, I think some of it is a little bit about what we've covered a little bit, but I think you know we talk about data scientists, and there's a lot of companies out there that have a ton of data and a ton of data scientists, but they don't put enough. I'd say one one thing is they don't put enough weight on the relationship side of it, and they put too much weight on the empirical data. So I I, I think there's an art and a science, a head and a heart. There's a balance, and that's one of the things I was trying to describe. Like when I would when I talk with our data scientists about what a loyalty or coupon site does, the empathy uh, and the understanding is really what helped us work together to find the best solutions to test. So relationship matters, particularly in affiliate, but boy, I think it matters in in almost everything you do. Marketers need to focus on relationship as much as they focus on data. That's that's one thing. Um, Secondly, I I don't think there's enough win-win thinking. Um, It's too much of a winner takes all. I looked at what uh, Amazon did this year during the COVID times, and I thought to myself, okay, well, maybe Amazon gets away with it because they're Amazon. But yeah. everybody who looks at that and thinks that's the model where, you know, you know, you got to cut things at all costs and you don't, you think in the moment, you know, of course they're going to get away with it because people will always go back to Amazon and work for them, but they may not go, they may not come back to work for you, Mr. Retailer, Mr. Retailer, because you're not Amazon. And so you you got to find win-wins during tough times. And I think COVID gave us an example of many companies starting to think about how they could help the partners that have been there for them for all these years. Marketers need to think about win-win and partnerships. And um, so I think that's lesson number two. I'd say my third and final thing that I, I think marketers don't do enough of is they lack technical expertise. Um, given what's going on in the industry. And I think like wh- here I'm working at a, at a software company that focuses on, you know, really the infrastructure of being a network and tracking is one of those issues that I think there's not enough advertisers that understand really what wave is coming with cookies and privacy. And I think marketers need to get in the weeds a whole lot more than where they are. And they need and they need to align with tools that are going to instrument them for the future and geek out a little bit on the technology. I think that's that is uh, something that uh, those worlds have to come together uh, finally, or else um, the marketing and advertising industry is going to you know going to leave them behind. That's awesome. You know, as you were saying, number two, not enough win-win situations. I think something's happening, and it's been happening, but it's really starting to come to a head that may uh, force the hand. So for a really long time, advertisers held, uh, you know, the, 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 the weight and the, the power in the relationship. They paid for the, you know, the networks, they paid for uh, affiliates. But affiliates have done a really good job of building their own brands. And yes. so now if you, if you want that audience, you have to, you know, it's not, it's not the same partnership as it used to be. There is a much more even footing now. And so maybe more of those win-win situations will be forced to happen. Yeah, I, I, look, at, um, I look at what I learned about loyalty. And what I learned about loyalty at eBay, like I thought about um, this pretty de- deeply, is that it's no longer about eBay's customer only. In fact, 
in some cases, the customer may end up at eBay just because they have an ad out there that uh, with a, for a pair of khaki pants that they need at the time. But boy, if somebody comes in and offers them the same pair of khaki pants at uh, Rakuten for 2% more, they're not necessarily loyal to eBay. They're loyal to Rakuten and uh, they're loyal to their rebates. So uh, companies have to be willing to share their customer. They have to be willing to, if they're gonna work with partners, it's a collective customer. And they have to think and plan and uh, be able to operate around customers. It doesn't necessarily matter how you get the customer in what way, as long as you're working together to build value. And so um, I'm, I'm sure everybody wants that direct customer relationship always. That's the goal. But it would be short-sighted to think that that's the only way you should operate. That's the incrementality test is it's okay that a loyalty site brought back your customer. That's good. That's a good thing. They're helping you. Otherwise, they're going to help your competition, by the way. So you have to be willing to, to, to play that game. Outstanding. Outstanding. So tell us about Tune. What's, uh, what's the difference if our audience has not been exposed to Tune yet? What's Tune all about? Well, Tune believes that every advertiser can benefit from better technology and manage marketing partnerships. And our platform, the Tune Marketing, uh, the Tune Partner Marketing Platform, is designed to support the unique needs of advertisers as they build their own publisher networks and make it easier for them to work with other types of entities, like not only affiliate publishers but other networks and agencies. And I think one of the things that Tune does, uh, Tune is not a network. Tune is pure technology, and we have no intention of competing with networks. We want to work. Uh, we want networks to plug into Tune uh, because we're, we're we're trying to help advertisers scale their business, right? So we don't compete with networks, and we're a pure SaaS platform, meaning we only charge uh, for technology. We don't charge on a percentage of media basis. So our job is not to worry about. Our job is to to get our customers to connect with as many partners as they can. And they can do that all day long. We're not going to charge them more. Even if they make millions and millions of dollars off a single partner, they're still going to pay their monthly subscription fee to Tune. Um, so that, that's one thing. Um, Tune is, is also just, it, it is really a platform that helps you maximize your ROI. It's about doing more with less and worry-free, um, being able to build relationships, scale as you need to, customize and brand your program as you see fit while also leaning on um, our workflows and our automation and uh, being able to, to build a predictable business for yourself. And in doing so, without the stress of worrying about fraud, without the stress of worrying about data, uh, thinking about tracking. I mean, we are, the, in my mind, the world's best tracking platform because we have, we have uh, solved for every potential tracking scenario and we're built to deal with the future of tracking changing. So I think for all those reasons, like Tune is just a really interesting, I'll call it a disruptive force in the affiliate space, just because we're not necessarily in it to become another network. Wow, that was a ton. We really started rolling there towards the end. So much to learn from here. Um, you know, when it comes to dealing with incrementality, Data is a huge issue. Gotta have good data. 
Um, you got to be able to paint the vision. So data is part of it. It's a big part of it, but you got to be able to paint a vision and you got to focus on the relationships. The third thing he talked about was to test and to set a very objective experiment to look at. Did you know you can test affiliate incrementality? Uh, so much here, Brian. Thank you so much. If you want to get a hold of Brian, we're going to include uh, and have included uh, his contact info, ways you can follow him, ways to get in contact with Tune as well in the show notes. I want to thank you so much, man, so much to think about. I have so many notes and hey, if you need help, if you want to figure out what you need to be doing with your program right now, so much is changing every day. You can go uh, to calendly.com slash Jamie Birch and find some time for you and I to sit down and chat. No strings attached. Um, I love to help out. So calendly.com slash Jamie Birch, or you can email me at gethelp at jebcommerce.com. So either way, you're going to be connected with me and we will, uh, we'll talk about whatever problems and issues and obstacles you have and go over whatever strategies you need to deploy. So thank you for listening. Now, if you found this to be valuable, Valuable. please go into Spotify or iTunes and give us a reference, give us some five stars. And if you know someone who would benefit from this particular episode, please go share those with them. And hey, it's okay to share this podcast on Facebook. Did you know that? <laughs> so help us get the word out on this podcast. We appreciate it. Hopefully this has proven to be educational and maybe a little entertaining today. Thank you.